I'm Jessica Abel, and this is Out on the Wire, the show about making stories step by step. Each regular episode, we pose a challenge for listeners to help you develop your own stories. The Working Group is an online platform where you can post your responses to the challenges and get feedback from fellow listeners and from us. This is a workshop episode, which happens every other week, where we discuss and collaborate on some of the interesting work from the Working Group and talk about it to see if we can help move it forward. My collaborators today are Benjamin Frisch, producer of Out on the Wire. Hey, everybody. And fellow cartoonist, also my husband, Matt Madden. Hi. If you want us to consider your work for a workshop episode or just get feedback on your Out on the Wire project, getting involved in the working group is easy. Just sign up for my newsletter at jessicaable.com slash podcast, and we'll send you an invite. This week, we're going to change it up a bit. Uh, we're finally at the point in our process where we're really making things which is awesome, but that also necessarily makes our projects a little bit more difficult to talk about in this kind of format. So we're going to be operating a little bit more freeform, talking about your projects, of course, but also talking about our own experiences and taking more questions on all sorts of subjects. So if you've got a question for us, post it in the working group or hit us up on Twitter. I'm at JCC Abel and Ben is at Benjamin Frisch. And we've got a special little interview about interviewing with one of our workshop superstars, Dean Johnson. So as I said, each workshop we're responding to a challenge posed in the previous episode. Episode five was all about research and interviewing, and the challenge was... I want you to do an interview, even if you're writing fiction. But before you do the interview, I want you to conduct a pre-interview or do research and map out major plot points and turning points. Create a list of questions. Think through feeling questions. Make your map. Search for anecdotal hooks you can use to help the audience get through and understand the stakes. Every workshop, we try to pick some stories that reflect some of the most interesting things that came up on the group for that challenge. And this time, we're going to start off with uh, challenge work by Katya Takach. Ben, do you want to read that for us? Sure. Uh, Why do we sometimes enjoy the misfortune of others? Schadenfreude, a feeling of enjoyment that comes from seeing or hearing about the troubles of other people, is the theme of my first podcast episode. While I'm in a search of an ongoing story to tell, I set to interview some professionals in the field. My first interviewee is Colin Wayne Leach, professor of psychology at University of Connecticut. He did a study on how schadenfreude is different from pride, joy, and gloating. Uh, And she's posted some questions. Uh, How different is our present understanding of schadenfreude from the one that Nietzsche had? Uh, What is your personal definition of schadenfreude? Why is it important to tell schadenfreude apart from gloating and the other feelings? What are the most common situations for schadenfreude these days? You say that schadenfreude goes along uh, with the feeling of powerlessness. Why? Are there ways to look at schadenfreude as a positive emotion? Is there anything we can do to escape control schadenfreude within ourselves? Um, What do you do when you have it? Is there a real danger for a society where schadenfreude is widely experienced? And is there a defiant degree of misfortune that happens to a person we envy when schadenfreude fades into pure pity? So we got a bunch of comments on this one. I thought it was pretty interesting. Uh, she's basically going to this the, to an expert first to kind of get a framework, it seems like. Yeah. And she's trying to figure out what the, the central story of this particular episode is going to be. This is not going to be it. It's not going to be just what is schadenfreude. But she wants to have this as a framework. And I think it's smart to go to an expert first. What do you guys think? Yeah, you know, it sort of depends on the style of her show and what she wants. You know, if it's, 
if it's really sort of an academic look at what sort of what is schadenfreude, which a lot of these questions suggest, um, then yeah, a professor is, is probably a good option. That's sort of the, the NPR method. But my, my first thought was, uh, you know, at least from her list of questions, like she should be asking this guy, like, like, tell me about your experiences with schadenfreude. Like, why are you interested in this? Like what, why? I mean, obviously you've experienced this emotion. You've thought about it a lot. Like what's your deal? man. Right. right, exactly. Like you've spent years studying this clearly and written books or whatever it is about this. Why? Like what made you want to do that? Uh, yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Um, what, I, what I meant by going to an expert first could be good is like she will then, I think, understand some of the sort of some of the intellectual framework around schadenfreude. And that can help her then form other interviews. But I don't think she'd want to use that actually in, you know, that information necessarily directly in her podcast because it could be super dry. And it's it's funny because um, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a great idea to go see uh, experts. Glenn Washington would just be like throwing me out of the door right now. He's so anti-experts. He's just like, don't give me the pointy heads. Give me real people walking through stuff. And if you can get the pointy head to go through real stuff for you, that's really a that's really a uh, triumph. Right. I mean, I'm finding myself thinking about your book, Jessica, and all of the caveats from Glenn and from other people about being careful about uh, experts and not and how dry it can be just to have like a professor saying, well, schadenfreude was first introduced by Nietzsche and whatever. Uh, and so I definitely had the same reaction as Ben and thinking, you should ask this guy, you know, why? What's his deal? You know, why is he studying for schadenfreude? If you know, if that is his uh, his main subject, I don't know if it is or not. Um, and really, it's hard to it's hard to I find it hard to to contribute much without knowing more about where she's going with this because, again, if it's like a sort of ideas thing where like uh, the podcast is going to be about different uh, you know psychological themes each episode then maybe a bit more clinical approach is, is important. Or is this just a background interview so that she has her ground covered and then we'll go interview real people who've Come on, this guy's a real person. He's a real person. He's a real person too. Come on. Well, yeah. Well, that's Professors that's are the people too, Matt. <laughs> cutting the um, combining the two would be good, and getting this guy to like get take off his lab coat and uh, say, you know, what really makes me titillated is when uh, these awful things happen. And um, no, it's. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. And but I think that that's the question. Is like I I don't think there's anything wrong with doing an interview that has very um, you know academic kind of outlines to it as long as it's not what you're planning to put on the radio, just that, you know, like it, you, you need to find that that's background. That's just you learning what you need to learn. And then if this guy is going to become a character in the story, then he needs to have some emotional connection to what he's doing. And he probably does. I mean, anybody who spends a lot of time studying schadenfreude probably has a lot of feelings about it. You know, um, it's just a matter of, is this a guy who can access those feelings or is he not? And we don't know. She may not know either. There's no one way you're going to be doing research for every kind of story, every kind of narrative project that's going to be that you're working on. But that said, there's sort of some general guidelines here. And I feel like what we're getting at basically what those things are. Get the information out, you know, figure out what the sort of A, B and C is. And then, you know, also try to get at personal stories, emotion, you know, what are the turning points in this guy's life? Where did he, what was he studying before? And then how did, what was the moment when he decided to start studying this? Are we ready to move on to the next one? Yeah. Okay, Matt, can you read the next one for us? Okay, this is from uh, Brian McKinley. 
and he writes, This is the story of six astronauts that spend 40 years traveling to another world and then have their mission fall apart in a matter of days after arrival. Turning points in my story are the early death of one of the astronauts, discovery of a surviving intelligent life form, infection by a parasitic alien plant, and the psychedelic experiences it causes that lead to the catastrophic end of the expedition. Um, And I'll just add one thing that uh, Jessica filled me in on when we were talking about it before we started recording here, that the part of the um, space voyage uh, is tied up in a a religious cult or theology of some sort. Right. right. Um, The idea being that the people who sign up to go on very, very long space voyages attach themselves to some kind of religious order to sort of justify the, their using up their lives traveling across space. So they're like futuristic monks. Exactly. So to get back to Brian's, uh, what he wrote, real world research interview subjects would be former monks and nuns. What made you decide to join your religious order? What did your family or friends think about that decision? What did you miss the most? Did people treat you differently? How does that make you feel? What would you like to tell those people? What parts of your secular life remained with you in the order? Describe your average day. What do you like to do with your free time? What do you believe in? Tell me about a time that belief helped you get through a difficult experience. Did you ever question your faith? What did you do when you have those feelings? What is the question you most want an answer to? What made you give up your vows? Was it one incident or an extended process? So I think these are all good questions. Um, and I like that uh, we wanted to talk about this this uh, challenge work um, because he is dealing with fiction and he's dealing he's trying to figure out a way to speculatively connect. He wants to find some people in the real world who could um, expand his understanding of whose characters might be and what their motivations might be, which I think is a really good idea. If he's got characters who are all basically, space monks, he's probably not going to have a lot of access to what the kind of motivations are in the modern world, never mind the future, uh, for becoming a monk. You know, that's going to be a really hard thing to understand without actually talking to some real people who have committed their lives to um, uh, a higher ideal or an ideal of something non-tangible. I think it's a kind of an interesting um, connection to make between space voyage and sort of monastic life. But if you think about it realistically, like these voyages take a really long time, it sort of makes a certain amount of sense. Like it requires a really disciplined life. Um, you know, one thing actually that I that I thought of um, when, I, when I read this was um, uh, the Sea Org. I believe the Sea Org is the uh, perpetually ocean-bound uh, vessel that houses the Scientology... Uh, army or whatever you want to call it yeah it's basically the scientology clergy and it's sort of a form of monastic life but it's not like you know the traditional sort of christian monk um sort of life so maybe you know maybe uh that idea is is something else to look into it's like there are there are multiple ways to think about like what is the sort of disciplined monastic life there's Um, also actually there's a bunch of different ways to investigate you know, monastic-ish life in space. Like, for example, there's a man living in space right now on the International Space Station for an entire year. He'll be the first person to live up there that long. And um, he's 
all over Twitter. You can find out what he thinks about being up on the space station for that long. And there's, you know, a million YouTube videos of um, life on the space station, what it looks like, what it feels like. Um, you know, obviously it's all sort of this is great because these guys are um, guys and women are astronauts who love their job. But, you know, it still could give you more sp- concrete picture of of that kind of life. Why why do you think it's a good idea to do an informational interview like this instead of just uh, like cracking into a book? Like why what is the value in doing an interview versus just like regular research? Well, I mean, I think cracking books is a great idea too. I don't think there's anything there's, there's not sort of it's not an either or choice. You want to do both. Um but I do think you get the chance to get more off the cuff emotion. And you also have access to people who haven't written books, if you're asking, if you're actually doing interviews. So um, you may find people who really have a different experience and haven't felt like, oh, well, this is important enough to write a book about. But they're, you know, they have that experience. One thing I would say about his um, proposed questions, though, is he's still he kind of um, because he's thinking of this as an informational interview. He got away from the whole thing of a timeline and turning points. And I think those are actually really crucial for his story because his mm-hmm. characters will have a timeline that they follow where they decided to join the order. Um, and, you know, he's talking about former monks and nuns here. I'm not sure why former, because I don't think his characters leave the order. But if they do, that's also a really relevant moment of change. You know, and what are the various times when their faith was challenged or whatever? You know, these are uh, going to those kinds of questions will evoke stories that I think will be very useful to him in building his the texture of his story. All right, so let's get to the questions. Cool. Um, so Debbie Jenkinson asks, I'm interested to hear how people have sourced experts for interview. Obviously, it's going to help if you can say you're from the uh, from the BBC or NPR, but have you examples of how to make that luck happen? Also, does approaching people get any easier or asking them personal questions? I felt a bit uncomfortable asking Declan, uh, one of her characters, how old he was, and he's fictional. (laughs) Um, Okay, so there's a couple different things going on here. Uh, I think, first of all, how do you source people for interviews? Um, it, it, It seems to be that she's not asking how do you source people, which would mean how do you figure out who to interview. She's asking, how do you approach people and ask them for an interview? Like, how do you actually get them to talk to you? Um, and you you do that by asking them. It does, you know, it does help to have, to be able to say, like, I'm with this show, blank. It, you know, and actually Stephanie Fu talked about this, where she just, like, just made up that she was doing a show. Like, just, you know, make up doing well, a show. She was doing a show, but it wasn't a very important show. Right. And you don't have to tell people that nobody listens to this thing that you're doing. In fact, do not tell people. <laughs> yeah. That no, if nobody listens to your thing, don't tell anybody that because then they're going to think mm-hmm. I shouldn't listen to it either or I shouldn't talk to you about it. Yeah. I mean, say Debbie is working on a comic, right? She's working on a um, a graphic novel and should say, I'm, I'd like to interview you for my graphic novel. People really like to feel like you're interested in them. You know, just phrase it like, I'm really interested in what you do. Let's talk about it, you know, especially if it's just for an informational interview. And I think that approaching people does get easier, especially when when you need something from someone. Also, just with practice, it gets easier with practice that, you Mm -hmm. know, you do it a few times and you get to feel like, oh, well, people might say yes. Sometimes they can say no, too. They're allowed to say no. 
But usually when people say no, it's because they don't have time. It's not because they hate you. I mean, don't take it personally. It just is what it is. It does it, The other part of this question was, does it get any easier asking them personal questions? Um, that also gets easier with practice, yes. It never gets easy because you're always, you know, you're poking your fingers into something that isn't really your business officially. But you're there to ask questions and they know that you're there to ask questions. And if you just ask it in a professional manner, you know, it'll go fine. And once it goes fine a few times, it will get easier. All right. The next question is from Katya, who uh, contributed earlier. She writes, in the show, Larissa McFarker says she requests from her interview subjects two interviews of two hours each. Is that bold, asking for so much attention time while you're an amateur? Is there a way to predict how much it is okay to ask from your interview subject? Or should you solely base your interview requests on your own needs and see if you're lucky? This is a good question. I think that uh, the Larissa standard of how much time you can ask from an interviewee is a very high standard, but she's working for The New Yorker. And this relates back to the question we just had from Debbie. You know, does it help to tell people where you're from? Well, yes. If you're from The New Yorker and you ask for four hours of interview time minimum, people are likely to say yes. If you say, oh, I just need a background interview for my graphic novel, they're probably going to say no. So yes, I do think you need to be a little bit sensitive about that. Now, it depends on the person. If it's somebody who has high demands on their time, you know, you may say, look, I need 15 minutes. Just fit me in. Uh, if it's somebody who is going to be, you know, a major character in your story and they know it and they're on board with that, then I think you can say, uh, you know, I need an hour or, you know, even if they ask, or you don't even ask, you just say, you know, or you block out time. And I do think you really need to re respect people's time. When you say you're going to talk for 15 minutes, you talk for 15 minutes. And then you can say, look, I have a couple more questions. Is it okay if we keep going? Or you say, I want, I really want to respect your time. So, you know, I'm ready to cut it off here, but I, I don't want to, you know, stop before we're done. Is there anything else you want to say or something along those lines where you can leave it open for them to continue talking, but you also show that you are professional and you're respecting their time. And there's nothing there's nothing in that about being an amateur. No, nothing at all. And I think that that's the, that's the key. Like the heart of this question is Katya feels, and I think Debbie feel, they both feel um, very understandably... Uh, insecure about their position as interviewers because they don't feel like pros, you know? Mm -hmm. They don't feel like they have the authority to ask this time from people um, or to ask them personal questions or to even, you know, get in the room with them. And uh, what I say to that is um, pull up your boots, you know? Like you are doing this for a creative project that you care about and um, you're asking people for their time and that is a real thing that you are asking. It's not nothing. Um, but on the other hand, most people are really willing to talk about themselves and their ideas, and they're happy to do it. Uh, it, it it's, a, it's a fun, pleasurable thing for them to do. Um, and I think just keep that in mind. Um, and, it, you know, it goes back to the uh, – there's a big section in, in the last podcast in episode five about how to approach the whole situation of interviewing. And really it's about – announcing in many, many different ways without actually saying it in words that you are a professional and you are here to do a job. Um, and that is a way of, of letting people feel taken care of. That's the whole thing I was saying about like respecting people's time. So if you say it's 15 minutes, it is 15 minutes. You know, this, this is, 
it's it's all important, you know. Yeah. Next question. Yeah. So Brian McKinley, who we also t- talked to earlier or talked about earlier, asks about my history um, with interviewing for Trish Trash. Now, obviously, I've in- interviewed a ton for Out on the Wire, but even for Trish Trash, which is fiction, I interviewed uh, roller derby players on background, basically to find out what their lives were like. And he says... Um, how would Trish Trash have been different without the interviews? What did the interviews provide that couldn't have been gleaned from other sources of research? Uh, I think basically I could have gotten most of the information from the from other kinds of research. I'm sure I could have found blog posts about this, could have done other stuff. But, you know, by talking to a person, I had um, one person's individual point of view. I was able to ask the specific questions I needed to ask and get a sense of her you know, her investment and her emotion in what she was doing and so on. Um, and I should say that the, the interviews I did for Trish Trash were fairly minimal. And one that I had planned that I've never done and really do feel like I need to do is with some um, officials uh, because that's a whole other side of the Derby world. And I feel like I don't understand it well enough and I, I want to know more about it, but I've never managed to put that together. The thing that really was super useful and happened just by chance was that uh, I have a uh, former intern na- named uh, Justine Sarla, who was here with me, um, working with me in the studio in Angoulême. And she is a roller derby player and like a, a really serious one. And that was, she's also a cartoonist. And that's why she was my intern, not because of the roller derby. So um, we spent a lot of time in my studio together and had a lot of time to talk about derby and how it works. And so from her, I really got to understand a lot about strategy and defense and also about team dynamics and about, you know, even how the league works and all this other stuff. So over time, not through concentrated, I'm going to go out and do an interview, but over many, many conversations, I was able to really understand the world of roller derby much better than I would have otherwise. I won't say I understand it, you know, at a deep, deep level, but um, because I don't play, but like, a lot more than your average person, and you can you can know the rules to a thing, like say uh, football. Like I know the rules to American football, but I don't know what's going through the mind of somebody who's playing football. Uh, and and if I wanted to know that, I would have to actually talk to somebody who plays professional football to find out like what that's actually like. Right. Yeah. Very much so. You know, and talking to Justine, like she hates the coach care character in Trish Trash because she's so jerky to the players and she's like, she should never be like she would she would grumble and complain every time she had to, you know, deal with a page that had the coach on her. She just hates the coach, you know, it's and and, um, you know, I went to practices and and uh, various things with the local players here in Angoulême and watched how they trained. And that's helpful for drawing. And there, there's just a lot of stuff that can come out of those kind of real life interactions. Renee Brown Cheng asks, I found it difficult being able to come up with my ideal ending with my first interview. For my pre-interview, I'm very intrigued by Rachel's story and think others would be interested in as well. But do you think it will fall flat if I don't have an envisioned ending? I also don't know how to end the interview. This is an interesting question because I, I am not 100% sure what Renee is picturing here mm-hmm. because I see this... Uh, She's she's doing um, a story about uh, a woman who, as a child, was um, a self-identified male and then later decided she was a masculine woman and is sort of questioning various things about that. 
unless she's going to try to do this interview and then just take the interview without editing it and put it into a podcast, she doesn't need to know the ending before she starts. Yeah, I when I interviewed when I've been interviewing people recently, um, oftentimes my first piece of tape will come from the very end. And sometimes and usually my ending will come somewhere in the middle. You know, an interview is not about like building to a grand crescendo. Like an interview is about sort of getting these little pieces that you can then take back later and reconstruct into something that that makes sense as a story. Unless it's live. Unless it's live, in which case that's... In which case you do kind of need to know where are we going with this thing. And you hope that you have some great revelation that comes in the actual interview and you don't know until you're there. But if you're prepared, you're you're prepared to get that revelation. And so, yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. But yeah, I mean, we um, I did a couple short interviews with members of the working group this week to put on episode six. They'll be coming next week. And all of the quotes that we're using are from like the last three minutes of these interviews, Mm -hmm. because that's when we really got into the real stuff. We weren't just laying groundwork. We weren't just figuring out what the what talk talking about what we were talking about, we eventually got into what were the feelings of it or, you know, what what were the big turning points or what were the revelations? And that's the tape that we ended up using. So this is the this is the beauty of editing, basically. So I don't know, Renee, um, I don't know if Renee is going to edit or not. So that's a big question. The second piece of the piece of it is I don't know how to end the interview. So I think she means literally how to say, OK, we're done here with her subject, Rachel. I think basically that's what you do. You say, OK, I got what I need. Thanks very much. Time's up. Time's up. Yeah. Like if she has a specific amount of time, she can use that. But also like, that's great. Thank you so much. You know, I really appreciate your time. I I got some great stuff here. This is going to be a great story. Thank you. Bye. Like that's how you end the interview. Yeah. Uh, So so lastly, I was thinking it would be really nice um, for this workshop episode to actually talk to somebody who had finished doing an interview because we're talking about all this stuff. It's like they're we're all preparing to do something and we're not really talking about sort of the consequences of that thing. And um, Right, because the thing is that the the challenge, again, was to to show us your preparation for an interview, not actually show us the interview. The interviews themselves will be too long for us to be able to usefully talk about on the working group. So we have all of this like preparation after preparation after preparation. I talked to a member of the group who had uh, just finished an interview. He had written up a set of questions and then he he did the interview. Um, uh, it's with a uh, member, uh, Dean Johnson. Uh, Dean's not exactly sure um, the f- sort of the final form of this interview. It's an audio interview and it's sort of a part of a project that he's working on about connecting um, sort of at-risk youth with um, mentors or, or people who've just, you know, been through stuff, people that can can teach kids something about their life i talked to him for for about 45 minutes and um just cut together this little piece about sort of his process and uh his rather unique (laughs) uh process um i thought it might be interesting yeah i love uh i've listened to this and i love the the seat of the pants way that he goes about um setting up the interview and even recording the interview it's very uh inventive i love it yeah so uh hope you enjoy My name is Dean Johnson, and I live in uh, Minnesota. I was just uh, helping my dad. This is a gutter cleaner. 
and I pull up into the gas station behind him. And so this guy comes over, he has a cane, and you know, this happens all the time. He's a black guy with a cane, kind of a limp, a hoodie, you know, a black coat, and he, hey man, you know, he kind of looks like Thelonious Monk, you know, with this gray kind of beard, and hey man, you know, uh, I just need six bucks for the, for the, you know, to rent a bed at the Dorothy Day. You got six bucks for me, man? Dorothy Day is the local charity. People can stay there for $6 a night on a mat on the floor. Um, they can sleep there from midnight, but they wake them up at 6 and kick them out. And, you know, don't ask you, what's your hardest personal struggle right now? That might be a little too direct, but you say, you know, you have any friends or guys you know that are really struggling with something or you or a family member or something, you know, make it super broad, you know. So you get some sort of answer no matter what. And that'll get the conversation started. And then you'll find something because something in there in his voice will, will inflect, you know, and he'll say something about, yeah, I used to work at, you know, GM or something. And then you, you jump on that. It's like, oh, really? GM. Oh, you know, is that a, what is that? What is, you know, is that, is that a car you mean? Or no, no, I work for the electro motors, the trains. Oh, really? And then you just pretty soon the story's rolling, you know. And you can't get him to stop talking. Um, it could have been, it could have ended there. Um, I don't know. I think, I mean, what this class is telling me, if nothing else, is that it's more about um, figuring out, you know, how to reframe a, a, a life. There's an arc there because he's homeless and he used to work at GM. That's a definite arc. You know, and this, this is, I basically told him, I said, look, like I said, it looks like you're down and out. Yeah, I'm down and out. You know, and I said, you've got, you probably got a you got a story or two, right? He says, "Yeah, I do, I do." He says, "I got sixty years of stories, <laughs> good stories." <laughs> I'm saying, "Yeah, that's what I mean." I said, "Listen, um, I, I'm not going to give you just six bucks for you, you know, asking me for six bucks because I think you have valuable information for me." And I'm, but I said, "Hey, listen, I'll give you forty bucks for an hour of story." If you know, I said, "Can I reach you?" And I gave him my cards and. Uh, two cards. And he said, yeah, you can reach me anytime. I got my Obama phone here. Anyway, we left it at that. But then, uh, you know, my wife has been on me about getting his carport put up. And so I thought to myself, shoot, you know, this guy looks like he's willing to work and stuff. So I, I so later that night I called him up and I said, listen, Lorenzo, how about this? Uh, what do you charge for hourly labor? Could you help me? I need, we need help putting up this Menards metal carport. It's metal poles and we need some concrete mixed can you, can you do that for me? Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I said, can you get up to the North End? Meet me at the coffee cup. I'll pick you up. He says, yeah, I can take the bus and stuff. So anyway, I pick him up and we get the ladders and go home and, and we're building the garage. I mean, I, what I did is I, I made this outfit. It has the, um, the Rode um, boom mic. I have it, that and my, my Zoom recorder and my cords. I Velcroed to my, I have this work apron. It's like a kitchen apron. And then there's a loop in the front of the apron. So I got the microphone sticking up, like pointing toward my face. And I just bang this apron on the guy. <laughs> and say, hey, wear this. And so I got the microphone sticking up at his face. And, and then I put the headphones on him. And so he could just talk and he can hear himself really well. And I said, hey, I want you to sound your best. <laughs> and then the stories just go from there. He, got, he was in the wrong place in the wrong time. He got charged with an um, armed robbery. 
and his lawyer recommended that he plead guilty. And he had a good job. He had no reason to go rob a bank. You know, you know, there wasn't an easy way to prove that he didn't do it. That really affected his life. And he said that never got off his record. And he said that hurts him every day. He had a family and he had to sleep in the jail from midnight to six every night. You know, and he had a couple of kids and a wife and, and uh, a good job. But he said that was, that really was hard on him, even to this day. Because every time, he, you know, if he would go to a job, there's a felony on his record that he, had, he, that he said he did, you know. It turns out his, um, his stepdad was the foreman for the Sears Tower, the steel crew. And so he was like, when he was a kid, he was in the, the house of Mayor Daly and stuff and knew, knew all sorts of stuff. You know, that makes it a big arc. Because, <laughs> you know, Sears Tower, you know, his dad was up on those beams, you know, and he, you know, he looks back on that and, and he sees what he is now and he's just like, man, don't let this happen. It just really pays to be open, you know, and really the most, the person that looks most foreign to yourself is, is the good person to talk to. You know, the, the, the team Penn and Teller, the magicians or whatever, they are very different people, right? And you don't team up with yourself and get any better than yourself. You know, a guy in a hoodie with a cane asking for money, you know, it can be just amazing. You just don't know. That's it for episode 5.5. We've got such an amazing, vibrant group of narrative artists collaborating on our Out on the Wire working group. They're working on everything from short comics to feature films, and the feedback they're getting on their ideas is so valuable. And not only from me, by the way, but from everybody on the group. Um... It's totally free, and if you want to join in and get an invite to the group, uh, you can get an invite to the group by heading over to the show page at jessicaable.com slash podcast and signing up for the newsletter. An invite will magically show up in your inbox within a day or so. If you ever have trouble getting into the group, send me or Ben a message through my website or on Twitter, and we'll get it straightened out. Ben is especially good at this, and he's at Benjamin Frisch on Twitter. At the show page, you can get show notes for all our episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and find links to our social media accounts. And we'd love for you to join us as a patron on Patreon. We are a crowdfunded show, and we love our patrons. They make all of this possible. For patrons, we've got full versions of our interviews with Larissa McFarker, Jonathan Mitchell, and Stephanie Fu, Iris story about his reporting trip with the Twin Principles, plus music and downloads from the show. You can even get your own private live workshop episode where Matt and Ben and I workshop your story with you over Skype. Find links to our Patreon on our show page at jessicaable.com slash podcast. You can find me on Twitter at jccable. Benjamin is at Benjamin Frisch and Matt is at mmaddencomics. Out on the Wire is produced by Benjamin Frisch with the support of La Maison des Auteurs Angoulême. We'll see you next week with episode six, Proof of Concept. See you then. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. See you next time.